Chapter 5, Part 2 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. St. Paul says in one place that his apostolical power is given him to edification and not to destruction. There can be no better account of the infallibility of the Church. It is a supply for a need and it does not go beyond that need. Its object is, and its effect also, not to enfeeble the freedom or vigor of human thought in religious speculation, but to resist and control its extravagance. What have been its great works? All of them in the distinct province of theology. To put down Arianism, Eucheanism, Pelagianism, Manichaeism, Lutheranism, Jansenism, such is the broad result of its actions in the past and now as to the securities which are given to us that so it ever will act in time to come first infallibility cannot act outside of a definite circle of thought and it must in all its decisions or definitions as they are called profess to be keeping within it the great truths of the moral law of natural religion and of apostolical faith are both its boundary and its foundation. It must not go beyond them, and it must ever appeal to them. Both its subject matter and its articles in that subject matter are fixed, and it must ever profess to be guided by scripture and by tradition. It must refer to the particular apostolic truth which it is enforcing, or what is called defining. Nothing, then, can be presented to me in time to come as part of the faith but what I ought already to have received, and hitherto have been kept from receiving, if so, merely because it has not been brought home to me. Nothing can be imposed upon me different in kind from what I hold already, much less contrary to it. The new truth which is promulgated, if it is to be called new, must be at least homogeneous, cognate, implicit, viewed relatively to the old truth, it must be what i may even have guessed or wished to be included in the apostolic revelation and at least it will be of such a character that my thoughts readily concur in it or coalesce with it as soon as i hear it perhaps i and others actually have always believed it and the only question which is now decided in my behalf is that i have henceforth the satisfaction of having to believe that i have only been holding all along what the apostles held before me. Let me take the doctrine which Protestants consider our greatest difficulty, that of Immaculate Conception. Here I entreat the reader to recollect my main drift, which is this, I have no difficulty in receiving the doctrine, and that because it so intimately harmonizes with that circle of recognized dogmatic truth in which it has been recently received, but if I have no difficulty, why may not another have no difficulty also? Why may not a hundred, a thousand? Now, I am sure that Catholics in general have not any intellectual difficulties at all on the subject of the Immaculate Conception, and that there is no reason why they should. Priests have no difficulty. You tell me that they ought to have a difficulty, but they have not. Be large-minded enough to believe that men may reason and feel very differently from yourselves. How is it that men, when left to themselves, fall into such various forms of religion, except that there are various types of minds among them, 
very distinct from each other. For my testimony, then, about myself, if you believe it, judge of others also who are Catholic. We do not find the difficulties which you do in the doctrines which we hold. We have no intellectual difficulty in that doctrine in particular, which you call a novelty of this day. We priests need not be hypocrites, though we be called upon to believe in the Immaculate Conception. To that large class of minds who believe in Christianity after our manner, in the particular temper, spirit, and light, whatever word is used, in which Catholics believe it, there is no burden at all in holding that the Blessed Virgin was conceived without original sin. Indeed, it is a simple fact to say that Catholics have not come to believe it because it is defined, but that it was defined because they believe it. So far from the definition in 1854 being a tyrannical infliction on the Catholic world, it was received everywhere on the promulgation with the greatest enthusiasm. It was in consequence of the unanimous petition presented from all parts of the Church to the Holy See, in behalf of an ex-cathedra declaration that the doctrine was apostolic, that it was declared so to be. I never heard one Catholic having difficulties in receiving the doctrine, whose faith on other grounds was not already suspicious. Of course there were grave and good men who were made anxious by the doubt whether it could be formally approved to be apostolical, either by scripture or tradition, and who, accordingly, though believing it themselves, did not see how it could be defined by authority and imposed upon all Catholics as a matter of faith. But this is another matter. The point in question is whether the doctrine is a burden. I believe it to be none. So far from it being so, I sincerely think that St. Bernard and St. Thomas, who scrupled at it in their day, had they lived into this, would have rejoiced to accept it for its own sake. Their difficulty, as I view it, consists in matters of words, ideas, and arguments. They thought the doctrine inconsistent with other doctrines, and those who defended it in that age had not that precision in their view of it, which has been attained by means of the long disputes of the centuries which followed. And in this want of precision lay the differences of opinion and the controversy. Now the instance which I have been taking suggests another remark. The number of those so-called new doctrines will not oppress us, if it takes eight centuries to promulgate even one of them. Such is about the length of time through which the preparation has been carried on for the definition of the Immaculate Conception. This, of course, is an extraordinary case, but it is difficult to say what is ordinary, considering how few are the formal occasions on which the voice of infallibility has been solemnly lifted up. It is to the Pope in ecumenical council that we look as to the normal seat of infallibility. Now there have been only 18 such councils since Christianity was, an average of one to a century. And of those councils, some passed no doctrinal decree at all. Others were employed on only one. And many of them were concerned with only elementary points of the creed. The Council of Trent embraced a large field of doctrine, certainly but I should apply to its canons a remark contained in the university sermon of mine, which has been so ignorantly criticized in the pamphlet, which has been the occasion of this volume. I there have said that the various verses of the Athanasian Creed are only repetitions in various shapes of one and the same idea, and in like manner that Tridentine decrees are not isolated from each other, but are occupied in bringing out in detail 
by a number of separate declarations, as if into bodily form a few necessary truths. I should make the same remark on the various theological censures promulgated by popes which the Church has received, and on their dogmatic decisions generally. I own that at first sight those decisions seem from their number to be a greater burden on the faith of individuals than are the canons of the councils. Still I do not believe that in matter of fact they are so at all, and I give this reason for it. It is not that a Catholic layman or priest is indifferent to the subject, or, from a sort of recklessness, will accept anything that is placed before him, or is willing, like a lawyer, to speak according to his brief, but that in such condemnations the Holy See is engaged for the most part in repudiating one or two great lines of error, such as Lutheranism or Jansenism, principally ethical, not doctrinal, which are divergent from the Catholic mind, and that it is but expressing what any good Catholic of fair abilities, though unlearned, would say himself from common and sound sense if the matter could be put before him. Now I will go on in fairness to say what I think is the great trial to the reason. When confronted with that august prerogative of the Catholic Church, of which I have been speaking, I enlarge just now upon the concrete shape and circumstances under which pure infallible authority presents itself to the Catholic. That authority has the prerogative of an indirect jurisdiction on subject matters which lie beyond its own proper limits, and it most reasonably has such a jurisdiction. It could not act in its own province unless it had a right to act out of it. It could not properly defend religious truth without claiming for that truth what may be called its pomeria, or to take another illustration, without acting as we act as a nation, and claiming as our own not only the land in which we live, but what we call British waters. The Catholic Church claims not only to judge infallibility on religious questions, but to animadvert on opinions in secular matters which bear upon religion on matters of philosophy, of science, of literature, of history, and it demands our submission to her claim. It claims to censure books, to silence authors, and to forbid discussions. In this province, taken as a whole, it does not so much speak doctrinally as enforce measures of discipline. It must, of course, be obeyed without a word, and perhaps in process of time it will tacitly recede from its own injunctions. In such cases, the question of faith does not come in at all, for what is a matter of faith is true for all times, and never can be unsaid. Nor does it at all follow, because there is a gift of infallibility in the Catholic Church, that therefore the parties who are in possession of it are in all their proceedings infallible. Oh, it is excellent, says the poet, to have a giant's strength, but tyrannous to use it like a giant. I think history supplies us with instances in the church where legitimate power has been harshly used. To make such admission is no more than saying that the divine treasure, in the words of the apostle, is in earthen vessels nor does it follow that the substance of the acts of the ruling power is not right and expedient, because its manner may have been faulty. Such high authorities act by means of instruments. We know how such instruments claim for themselves the name of their principles, who thus get the credit of faults which really are not theirs. But granting all this to an extent greater than can, with any show of reason, be imputed to the ruling power in the church, 
what difficulty is there in the fact of this want of prudence or moderation more than can be urged with far greater justice against protestant communities and institutions what is there to make us hypocrites if it has not that effect upon protestants we are all called upon not to profess anything but to submit and be silent as protestant churchmen have before now obeyed the royal command to abstain from certain theological questions such injunctions as i have been contemplating are laid merely upon our actions not upon our thoughts how for instance does it tend to make a man a hypocrite to be forbidden to publish a libel his thoughts are as free as before authoritative prohibitions may tease and irritate but they have no bearing whatever upon the exercise of reason so much at first sight but i will go on to say further that in spite of all that the most hostile critic may urge about the encroachments or severities of high ecclesiastics in times past in the use of their power i think that the event has shown after all that they were mainly in the right and that those whom they were hard upon were mainly in the wrong i love for instance the name of origin i will not listen to the notion that so great a soul was lost but i am quite sure that in the contest between his doctrine and followers and the ecclesiastical power his opponents were right and he was wrong yet who can speak with patience of his enemy and the enemy of st john chrysostom that theophilus bishop of alexandria who can admire or revere pope vigilius and here another consideration presents itself to my thought in reading ecclesiastical history when i was an anglican it used to be forcibly brought home to me how the initial error of what afterwards became heresy was the urging forward some truth against the prohibition of authority at an unseasonable time there is a time for everything and many a man desires a reformation of an abuse or the fuller developments of a doctrine or the adoption of a particular policy but forgets to ask himself whether the right time for it is come and knowing that there is no one who will be doing anything towards its accomplishments in his own lifetime unless he does it himself he will not listen to the voice of authority and he spoils a good work in his own century in order that another man as yet unborn may not have the opportunity of bringing it happily to perfection in the next he may seem to the world to be nothing else than a bold champion for the truth and a martyr to free opinion when he is just one of those persons whom the competent authority ought to silence and though the case may not fall within the subject matter in which that authority is infallible or the formal conditions of the exercise of the gift may be wanting it is clearly the duty of authority to act vigorously in the case yet its act will go down to posterity as an instance of a tyrannical interference with private judgment and of the silencing of a reformer and of a base love of corruption or error and it will show still less to advantage if the ruling power happens in its proceeding to evince any defect of prudence or consideration and all those who take the part of that ruling authority will be considered as time servers or indifferent to the cause of uprightness and truth while on the other hand the said authority may be accidentally supported by a violent ultra party which exalts opinions into dogmas and has it principally at heart to destroy every school of thought but its own such a state of things may be provoking and discouraging at the time in the case of two classes of persons of moderate men who wish to make differences in religious opinion as little as they fairly can be made 
and of such as keenly perceive and are honestly eager to remedy existing evils evils of which divines in this or that foreign country know nothing at all and which even at home where they exist it is not every one who has the means of estimating this is a state of things both of past time and of the present we live in a wonderful age the enlargement of the circle of secular knowledge just now is simply a bewilderment and the more so because it has the promise of continuing and that with greater rapidity and more signal results now these discoveries certain or probable have in matter of fact an indirect bearing upon religious opinions and the question arises how are the respective claims of revelation and of natural science to be adjusted few minds in earnest can remain at ease without some sort of rational grounds for their religious belief to reconcile theory and fact is almost an instinct of the mind when then a flood of facts ascertained or suspected comes pouring in upon us with a multitude of others in prospect all believers in revelation be they catholic or not are roused to consider their bearings upon themselves both for the honour of god and from tenderness for those many souls who in consequence of the confident tone of the school of secular knowledge are in danger of being led away into a bottomless liberalism of thought i am not going to criticize here that vast body of men in the mass who at this time would profess to be liberals in religion and who look towards the discoveries of the age certain or in progress as their informants direct or indirect as to what they shall think about the unseen and the future the liberalism which gives a colour to society now is very different from that character of thought which bore the name thirty or forty years ago now it is scarcely a party it is the educated lay world when i was young i knew the word first as giving name to a periodical set up by lord byron and others now as then i have no sympathy with the philosophy of byron afterwards liberalism was the badge of theological school of a dry and repulsive character not very dangerous in itself though dangerous as opening the door to evils which it did not itself either anticipate or comprehend at present it is nothing else than the deep plausible scepticism of which i spoke above as being the development of human reason as practically exercised by the natural man the liberal religionist of this day are a very mixed body and therefore i am not intending to speak against them there may be and doubtless is in the hearts of some or many of them a real antipathy or anger against revealed truth which it is distressing to think of again in many men of science or literature there may be an animosity rising from almost a personal feeling it being a matter of party a point of honour the excitement of a game or a satisfaction to the soreness or annoyance occasioned by the acrimony or narrowness of apologists for religion to prove that christianity or that scripture is untrustworthy many scientific and literary men on the other hand go on i am confident in a straightforward impartial way in their own province and on their own line of thought without any disturbance from religious difficulties in themselves or any wish at all to give pain to others by the result of their investigations it would ill become me as if i were afraid of truth of any kind to blame those who pursue 
secular facts by means of the reason which God has given them to their logical conclusions, or to be angry with science because religion is bound in duty to take cognizance of its teaching. But putting these particular classes of men aside as having no special call on the sympathy of the Catholic, of course he does most deeply enter into the feeling of a fourth and larger class of men in the educated portions of society of religious and sincere minds who are simply perplexed frightened or rendered desperate as the case may be by the utter confusion into which late discoveries or speculations have thrown their most elementary ideas of religion who does not feel for such men who can have one unkind thought of them I take up in their behalf St. Augustine's beautiful words, Ile in vos saviant, etc. Let them be fierce with you who have no experience of the difficulty with which error is discriminated from truth, and the way of life is found amid the illusions of the world. How many a Catholic has in his thought followed such men, many of them so good, so true, so noble, how often has the wish risen in his heart that someone from among his own people should come forward as the champion of revealed truth against its opponents various persons catholic and protestant have asked me to do so myself but i had several strong difficulties in the way one of the greatest is this that at the moment it is so difficult to say precisely what it is that is to be encountered and overthrown i am far from denying that scientific knowledge is really growing but it is by fits and starts hypotheses rise and fall it is difficult to anticipate which of them will keep their ground and what the state of knowledge in relation to them will be from year to year in this condition of things it has seemed to me to be very undignified for a catholic to commit himself to the work of chasing what might turn out to be phantoms and in behalf of some special objections to be ingenious in devising a theory which before it was completed might have to give place to some theory newer still from the fact that those former objections had already come to naught under the uprising of others it seemed to be specially a time in which christians had a call to be patient in which they had no other way of helping those who were alarmed than that of exhorting them to have a little faith and fortitude and to beware as the poet says of dangerous steps this seemed so clear to me the more i thought of the matter as to make me surmise that if i attempted what had so little promise in it i should find that the highest catholic authority was against the attempt and that i should have spent my time and my thought in doing what either it would be imprudent to bring before the public at all or what did i do so would only complicate matters further which were already complicated without my interference more than enough and I interpret recent acts of the authority as fulfilling my expectation. I interpret them as tying the hands of a controversialist, such as I should be, and teaching us that true wisdom which Moses inculcated on his people when the Egyptians were pursuing them. Fear ye not, stand still. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And so far from finding a difficulty in obeying in this case, I have cause to be thankful and to rejoice to have so clear a direction in a matter of difficulty. But if we would ascertain with correctness the real course of a principle, we must look at it at a certain distance and as history represents it to us. 
nothing carried on by human instruments but has its irregularities and affords ground for criticism when minutely scrutinized in matters of detail i have been speaking of that aspect of the action of an infallible authority which is most open to invidious criticism from those who view it from without i have tried to be fair in estimating what can be said to its disadvantage as witnessed at a particular time in the catholic church and now i wish its adversaries to be equally fair in their judgment upon its historical character can then the infallible authority with any show of reason be said in fact to have destroyed the energy of the catholic intellect let it be observed i have not here to speak of any conflict which ecclesiastical authority has had with science for this simple reason that conflict there has been none and that because the secular science as they now exist are a novelty in the world and there has been no time yet for a history of relations between theology and these new methods of knowledge and indeed the church may be said to have kept clear of them as is proved by the constantly cited case of galileo here exceptio probate regulam for it is the one stock argument again i have not to speak of any relations of the church to the new sciences because my simple question all along has been whether the assumption of infallibility by the proper authority is adapted to make me a hypocrite until that authority passes decree on pure physical subjects and calls on me to subscribe them which it never will do because it has not the power it has no tendency to interfere by any of its acts with my private judgment on those points the simple question is whether authority has so acted upon the reason of individuals that they can have no opinion of their own and have but an alternative of slavish superstition a secret rebellion of heart and i think the whole history of theology puts an absolute negative upon such a supposition it is hardly necessary to argue out so plain a point it is individuals and not the holy see that have taken the initiative and given the lead to the catholic mind in theological inquiry indeed it is one of the reproaches urged against the roman church that it has originated nothing and has only served as a sort of remora or break in the development of doctrine and it is an objection which i really embrace as truth for such i conceive to be the main purpose of its extraordinary gift it is said and truly that the church of rome possessed no great mind in the whole period of persecution afterwards for a long while it has not a single doctor to show st leo its first is a teacher of one point of doctrine st gregory who stands at the very extremity of the first age of the church has no place in dogma or philosophy the great luminary of the western world is as we know st augustine he no infallible teacher has formed the intellect of christian europe indeed to the african church generally we must look for the best early exposition of latin ideas moreover of the african divines the first in order of time and not the least influential is the strong-minded and heterodox tertullian nor is the eastern intellect as such without its share in the formulation of the latin teaching the free thought of origin is visible in the writing of the western doctors hilary and ambrose and the independent mind of jerome has enriched his own vigorous commentaries on scripture from the stores of the sacredly orthodox eusebius 
heretical questionings have been transmuted by the living power of the church into salutary truths the case is the same as regards the ecumenical councils authority in its most imposing exposition grave bishops laden with the traditions and rivalries of particular nations or places have been guided in their decisions by commanding genius of individuals sometimes young and of inferior rank not that inspired intellect overrule the superhuman gift which was committed to the council which would be a self-contradictory assertion but that in that process of inquiry and deliberation which ended in an infallible enunciation individual reason was paramount thus malchion a mere presbyter was the instrument of the great council of antioch in the third century in meeting and refuting for the assembled fathers the heretical patriarch of that see parallel to this instance is the influence so well known of a young deacon st athanasius with the three hundred and eighteen fathers at nicaea in medieval times we read of st anselm at bari as the champion of the council there held against the greeks at trent the writings of st bonaventure and what is more to the point the address of a priest and theologian salmeron had a critical effect on some of the definitions of dogma in some of those cases the influence might be partly moral but in others it was that of a discursive knowledge of ecclesiastical writers a scientific acquaintance with theology and a force of thought in the treatment of doctrine there are of course intellectual habits which theology does not tend to form as for instance the experimental and again the philosophical but that is because it is theology not because of the gift of infallibility but as far as this goes i think it could be shown that physical science on the other hand or again mathematical affords but an imperfect training for the intellect i do not see then how any objection about the narrowness of theology comes into our question which simply is whether the belief in an infallible authority destroys the independence of the mind and i consider that the whole history of the church and especially the history of theological schools gives a negative to the accusation there never was a time when the intellect of the educated class was more active or rather more restless than in the middle ages and then again all through church history from the first how slow is authority in interfering perhaps a local teacher or a doctor in some local school hazards a proposition and a controversy ensues it smoulders or burns in one place no one interposing rome simply lets it alone then it comes before a bishop or some priest or some professor in some other seat of learning takes it up and then there is a second stage of it then it comes before a university and it may be condemned by the theological faculty so the controversy proceeds year after year and rome is still silent an appeal perhaps is next made to a set of authority inferior to rome and then at last after a long while it comes before the supreme power meanwhile the question has been ventilated and turned over and over again and viewed on every side of it and authority is called upon to pronounce a decision which has already been arrived at by reason but even then perhaps the supreme authority hesitates to do so and nothing is determined on the point for years or so generally and vaguely that the whole controversy has to be gone through again before it is ultimately determined 
it is manifest how a mode of proceeding such as this tends not only to the liberty but to the courage of the individual theologian or controversialist many a man has ideas which he hopes are true and useful for his day but he is not confident about them and wishes to have them discussed he is willing or rather would be thankful to give them up if they can be proved to be erroneous or dangerous and by means of controversy he obtains his end he is answered and he yields or on the contrary he finds that he is considered safe he would not dare to do this if he knew an authority which was supreme and final was watching every word he said and made signs of assent or dissent to each sentence as he uttered it then indeed he would be fighting as the persian soldiers under the lash and the freedom of his intellect might truly be said to be beaten out of him but this has not been so i do not mean to say that when controversies run high in schools or even in small portions of the church an interposition may not advisably take place and again questions may be of that urgent nature that an appeal must as a matter of duty be made at once to the highest authority in the church but if we look into the history of controversy we shall find i think the general run of things to be such as i have represented it zosimus treated pelagius and colestius with extreme forbearance st gregory the seventh was equally indulgent with berengarius by reason of the very power of the popes they have commonly been slow and moderate in their use of it and here again is a further shelter for the legitimate exercise of the reason the multitude of nations which are within the fold of the church will be found to have acted for its protection against any narrowness on the supposition of narrowness in various authorities at rome with whom lies the practical decision of controverted questions how have the greek traditions been respected and provided for in the latter ecumenical councils in spite of the countries that held them being in a state of schism there are important points of doctrine which have been humanly speaking exempted from the infallible sentence by the tenderness with which its instruments in framing it have treated the opinion of particular places then again such national influences have a providential effect in moderating the bias which the local influence of italy may exert upon the see of st peter it stands to reason that as the gallican church has in it a french element so rome must have in it an element of italy and it is no prejudice to the zeal and devotion with which we submit ourselves to the holy see to admit this plainly it seems to me as i have been saying that catholicity is not only one of the notes of the church but according to the divine purposes one of its securities i think it would be a very serious evil which divine mercy avert that the church should be contracted in europe within the range of particular nationalities it is a great idea to introduce latin civilization into america and to improve the catholics there by the energy of french devotedness but i trust that all european races will ever have a place in the church and assuredly i think that the loss of the english not to say the german element in its composition has been a most serious misfortune and certainly if there is one consideration more than another which should make us english grateful to pius the ninth it is that by giving us a church of our own he has prepared the way for our own habits of mind our own manner of reasoning our own tastes 
and our own virtues, finding a place and thereby a sanctification in the Catholic Church. End of chapter 5, part 2